Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, y'all. Welcome to Punching Out. I'm Noah, and I'm joined by Louise. Hey, guys. And Gene Allen. Hiya. We'd like to talk to you about a term that you've probably heard in the last couple years permeating the capital D discourse. If you're the average Punching Out listener, we're guessing that you're probably a little bit more online and a little bit more theory knowledgeable than most. And you've probably heard the term emotional labor, I, I would say positively bandied about. For a, a variety of situations. And hey, when stuff is bandied. Yes, it's the worst. Um, so what we'd like to do is sort of take a look at what it is, what it isn't, and try to establish a definitive take on <laughs> the concept as a whole. So, you know, by the end of this episode, we will be 100% correct on what emotional labor is and it isn't. And then you can use that to tell your friends that they're wrong, which, uh, well... We'll get to that in a bit. But <laughs> I think what we could probably do is start off a little bit by sort of talking about why the three of us are the ones recording this particular episode. So, uh, Lou, do you want to talk a little bit about – I think it's what you used to do for a living, right? Yeah, and I mean I still do to to some extent because emotional labor is is basically the primary labor in any kind of service work. So I used to work retail. I still work in guest services now, but not in a retail capacity. And that is entirely the the labor part of it. Um, you know, when when I was in retail, they'd say, well, you just got to leave all your feelings and everything in the back room. And once you cross that threshold from the private space into the retail floor, you've got to just flip. Right, just instantly, you're somebody else. And over the years, I've developed a work persona, basically, that is really charming. I will say, I am just the smoothest person <laughs> in the world when I'm at work, um, because this is something that I've had to develop. Um, when you have guests and customers coming up to you, and there's always a risk that if you are not just right in your sincerity and your smile and your um, you know, helpfulness and anything like that, you're going to hear about it because they'll go to your manager or they'll write the corporate office and say, uh, that person didn't smile and it made me feel really uncomfortable. Because I, th And I think that's partly because at some level, they if they were not confronted with a really friendly, smiling face, then they might have to actually think about the human inside that mask that is just you know a grin and fool and confronting that would be <laughs> traumatizing to to the customer because then they might realize capitalism sucks <gasps> spoiler gotcha gene uh so right now i am a bank teller but i've had a variety of service like industry jobs and and you saying uh Referring to your work sona kind of reminded me of this Works. horrible, horrible moment. I I used to work as a yeah, they're both nodding their nodding their heads like, yeah, good joke. Um <laughs> I used to work as a barista in this like spot that was like off, right off the bus stop uh in a resort town. And I remember on July fourth uh, just like the worst, most horrible day, like, you know, lying out the door the whole time. And I remember during my lunch break looking at my uh, weird socks and being like, this is all that is left of me. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, it's one of those things where you are faced with a series of situations where you have to just at attenuate and abridge your personality and a lot of those situations are dumb, and they're like uh, obviously dumb, and you can't like call attention to the fact that they're dumb. Yeah. Mm. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that 
the Punching Out Collective does not endorse the use of the term work sona. <laughs> uh, second of all, so I experienced this phenomenon in a different way from the two of you because as our friends of the show will know, I teach for a living. Wait, you do? Yeah, I've never mentioned that before. But, never. You know, coming out, finally, admitting to it. But on the one hand, the nice thing about being a teacher is that the person you are at work is supposed to be a version of who you are. Like, yes, there is a professional mask that you're supposed to put on because you're dealing with children and there are certain topics that you don't broach with them. There are certain uh, differences that are supposed to be inherent in that relationship. Of course, every year you run into more people that don't understand this, but whatever, that's a side issue. I would say, though, <clears throat> that what we gain in being allowed to be somewhat ourselves at work the majority of the time, like, yes, you're more energetic than you normally are. You probably care more about your subject area than you would when you're at home. You definitely, there's a big portion of it that's literally... You know, the the people who are in front of you have to be the, – the one thing that we have in common is that when you're talking to a student, when you're talking to a, a, a classroom, you still have to make those people feel like they're the most important people in the world as long as they're in front of you. That's certainly a common experience. But at least you're allowed to do it from your point of view. If you're kind of a sullen person, then the way that you show that these are important, that your students are important to you, is very different from if you're normally kind of chipper and outgoing. Yeah. You're, you are allowed to, to grow that out of yourself. On the other hand, I think the difference is that even a regular customer doesn't carry with them the same quote-unquote uh, obligation uh, or load of obligation, I guess I should say, as a student does because you are expected and administrators and parents and superintendents and every other person who's not actually in the classroom will charge you with this. You're supposed to ensure that that person that's on the other side of your conversation has a good life. You know, it, it's considered your fault if they, whatever expectation they had for their life does not does not get met. And that's not something that ruins their whole day. That's something that, you know, ruins their going to college or going to <laughs> a good college or getting a job or whatever. So every decision becomes very fraught because you can't – you never you're, – you're explicitly told that you never know the moment where a student is going to stop trying in your class. You never know the moment when a student is going to decide that you don't like them and therefore they will never succeed under you. And that just means that you're constantly in a state of um, having to manage not only the expectations of the person in front of you, but you also have to manage the expectations of everyone in that person's life that is going to come down on your head like a ton of bricks if that person doesn't like how that ended up. So it's not just that they'll write to your manager or corporate office, but so will 16 other people most of whom you are now going to be accountable to professionally. And if I were to draw sort of a common thread between all three of these, you know, there, there's a there's a link of if, if you're a barista, right, and your customer doesn't like the way their drink was mixed or doesn't think that you smiled enough while handing it to them or, God forbid, you put something on their label that they uh, didn't intend you to, quote unquote, <laughs> may not be may or may not be referencing some recent news stories about a certain coffee company. Uh, when a customer says to you that they didn't like their experience at your store, you didn't make their them or their child happy, or when a student comes up to you and says that they simply cannot accept that they failed a quiz <laughs> or something along those lines, you're not really allowed to respond in the way that you would normally respond if you were some person on the street and somebody came up and said that to you. Um, I just as... Uh like there are two kind of connected examples that basically as a bank teller uh, come up basically every day. And it's when someone comes in and is like, why don't I have money? And the answer is either, well, cause, cause the bank screwed you or uh, because you spent money, ding dong. Like, <laughs> and you can't say either of those things. You have to be like, well, let's print up the balance sheet. All right, let's look at this. And they're like, well, what is this? And it's like purchases that you made. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, that and happens to me a lot too. Uh, 
yeah, and you can't and you can't do that. You have to figure out some way of managing your emotions around that. And sometimes it can be like immensely, immensely frustrating. Um, but you can't show that frustration. Right. And that's what that is. And it's not the worst thing in the world. I'm not, you know, getting uh, lung cancer from a coal mine. But it is no, undoubtedly work. And for a lot of jobs, that's the whole it's, job. It may not be giving you cancer, but it does increase your anxiety and blood pressure and everything else. Like I've had this entire year has been extremely stressful for me and I have health effects from it. Like I'm, I'm falling apart <laughs> this year. Um, it's finally getting better, but it, it's just been like that kind of stress and strain of I, you, cause part of the reason these guests do this is they come to me and they want to vent something. And because I cannot do a single thing about it, I'm a very good place to put all that anger and frustration that may not even have to do with my job specifically. They may just be like terrible, hateful people because of their lives. And I, because I cannot defend myself in any capacity, I'm a good target. Mm -hmm. Like I have nightmares uh, from work and basically every single nightmare I have is me just snapping and then starting to hit guests because they've just pushed me too far. And like, this is, this is, so, Gene, but, like, I, I disagree. Like, there is a health toll oh, yeah. to this and, and to the labor that goes into this. And it, and it manifests in stress and anxiety and depression. And To be clear, the nightmare is what happens after you snap and hit the guest, right? Uh, yes. Right, because for a moment there, I would argue that that's probably more of a fantasy. Uh, yes. I, I had, for example, one specific dream is I'm – helping a guest and she has like a two-year-old or something the two-year-old's just throwing quarters at me for some reason and then i just lose it and start throwing quarters back at the kid and then the mom in my dream just gets this look of like oh you're screwed now you're gonna have to do everything i say or i'm gonna go to your your boss or whatever i usually go welcome to, back to dreaming out I, I, <laughs> I usually go to i trip and then my head explodes like a melon Right. So <laughs> before this actually does become the show that I just invented, <laughs> I can't wait until that becomes Welcome a thing on way out. Welcome to out. Stop. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, no. So again, the very – I have a variation on this because while you do have – you know, if you're a teacher, you are supposed to have authority over your students – and there's a very weird construction there of what that means because depending on where you teach, that may or may not be true. And, and I refuse to believe – and then with younger children, whatever, but I teach high school. And so I refuse to believe that teenagers do not actually understand the power dynamics in their building. I refuse to believe that a kid going to a private school or going to a school in a suburb and that kind of thing does not understand that they actually hold some amount of power over the teachers in their building, that they can actually make the lives of um, the people that are – that supposedly have this authority over them harder. And there's plenty of testimony from coworkers of mine who have taught in suburban public schools, uh, who have taught in other private schools to attest to this. And so it's a weird thing because in every it, it, uh, gene, that interaction sounds so familiar to me because you'll have a kid say, well, why am I not doing well in this class? And I'm like, well, let's see. You can't say you didn't hand in any of your homework, doofus. Uh, also because we don't do homework anymore for the most part, but you can't say, well, let's see. It, it's very obvious to me that you, you can't even say something like, it's very obvious to me that you didn't study for these quizzes because I gave you the exact procedure and blah, 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 and you still didn't do well. So either you didn't read the instructions or you weren't prepared. No, you have to be like, all right, let's get the files out. Let's check everything. Let's go over each problem. So let me take you through your thought process and everything. Of course, the difference is that I'm mostly dealing with children and the two of you are mostly dealing with fully grown adults who should know better. <laughs> Can't put yeah. enough quotation yeah. marks Yes, exactly. 72-point fully grown. Yes, 72-point <laughs> air quotes yeah. around that. Um, Biggest qualifier ever. So I, I held back this article because it wasn't what I was looking for earlier, but would you believe that there is a book, and I'm going to find the title. Oh, yes. Um, so it's a book by Janelle Barlow and Klaus Moller, and I am pulling this from an article all the way back in 2010. It was in Slate called Defensive Selling by uh, Timothy Noah. 
The book is called A Complaint is a Gift, Recovering Customer Loyalty When Things Go Wrong. I'm so mad. Mm-hmm. Oh, you ain't seeing nothing yet. Because uh, we turn now to Chapter 8, When Customers Go Ballistic. Barlow and Moeller outline five principles to handle, and I love that this is in quotation marks, difficult customers. Because this is exactly what my bosses would put around like bad students or <laughs> lazy students or any other adjective that's not, you know, great. Anyway, the first one is Aikido. What? Mm-hmm. Masters of Aikido do not resist the physical force of their opponents. Rather, they turn with it and let it pass them. That's strategy one. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, we're going to be tracking exactly how red in the face Lou gets over the course of this. Second one. Pacing. All of us have a strong tendency to like people who are most similar to us. Barlow and Moller write, you must therefore find something in yourself that resembles the customer and display it. Obviously, this is going to be tricky when the customer is in a really bad mood. If he's shouting, you don't want to start shouting too, but neither do you want to be smiling. Instead, put on a sober face and make eye contact to acknowledge that this is a serious problem, even if it isn't. Mm-hmm. Number three, euphemism. Avoid saying anything that sounds like a command or contradiction. For instance, don't say, you must. Say, I need you to. And I love this. This is amazing. Fear of enraging nicotine addicts is why no smoking signs were replaced by language mangling signs that said, thank you for not smoking. Avoid words like but and however, because the pissed off customer will only hear the words that follow these qualifiers. If you have to say no, then first put a look of regret on your face or make an effort sound. Mm. Number four. Is that an effort sound? It, mm. it, yes. Yeah. Mm. Active listening. Mm. Number four, partnership. Talk about solving a problem together. Make your challenge the customer's challenge. What are we going to do, partner? Because apparently you're a cowboy now. <laughs> and number five, before Lou... Uh, just literally blows up in this the studio. This is the closest I've ever come to actually needing so to swear be the on this martial show. Artist. Here we go. Be a martial oh artist. Be a get, cowboy. Number five, get personal, but not in the way you think that they're going to mean this. Don't call him sir. Address him by name and give him your name too. Give him a business card if you've got one. If the customer hurts your feelings, let him know. Uh, okay. So I need to unpack that. Go for it. All right. That last one is definitely uh, the recommendation when you're in a hostage situation to get the the hostage person from killing you. Remind them that you're human. I have a name. I have children. Please don't kill me. That's exactly what that is. I hate that. I and I. Mm. So the reason I, I just, the reason I went ahead and and brought that in. Wait, sorry, Jane, go ahead. So so that is like basically because okay. Um, that is not surprising to me that that was a book that came out in 2010 because yep. a lot of banks kind of adopted uh, complaint measures and like ways of reporting customer complaints uh, around that time. So we are supposed to treat every situation like that basically using those procedures. And I've been to yeah, like, I've done yeah. all of those. I'm yeah. not gonna lie. Oh, I, this is how we're this is how we're supposed to. We're not trained in it. There's no official conference or right. anything. But this is how your bosses will tell you to handle students and parents, yeah. mm-hmm. which is interesting because again, one of those subsets of people is children, <laughs> and one is theoretically not. Anyway, sorry, continue. Um, yeah, no, I've just been to a bunch of seminars where it's like, hey, you know, you don't have to do these things. But the companies that don't go to business and then you'd lose your job. Is, are that they kind of are stuff. they couched as uh, and I hate this term best practices? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. They are. You love you love to have the best because like why would you have why would you have the why worst? would you have other ones? Yeah, they're the right. best. Yeah. What I other option is there? Frequently pull out my worst practices playbook before going to work. Okay, love to so do that. one thing that really needs to be said about all of this is there are tons of labor that even in a post-capitalist society that would require some kind of control of your emotions. Like we have a comrade that is in healthcare and her job is to help comfort people who have had really bad diagnosis, for example. Um, That requires a lot of emotional control because you're there literally to help comfort somebody. The difference between her job and 
even Noah's job, um, I'd say Noah and, and her job are more similar than, than not. And my job and, and Jane Allen's job, Allen's job is that we are on the side of we have to do this so that we can make more money. Mm. That ultimately the reason we have to do this kind of emotional manipulation of ourselves and the people around us is because we are there to make money. And if I'm not smiling, then the guest won't spend money, then I'm out of a job. And that's what's gross. And that's why this is a problem because it's not for the comfort and well-being of our comrades and people around us. It's so that the capitalists can make more money. Yeah. In the case of when people get mad at overcharge fees, which are just blatant nonsense kicking people where they're, when they're down, mm-hmm. or in the case of people getting mad at cash checking fees, which start off at like a certain – they have like a, a floor and then a ceiling and the ceiling is like pretty low. So it's mm-hmm. like both of these things exist to just take money out of poor people's pockets because how else are we going to get money out of poor people's pockets? The ways that – like all of the emotional labor you're doing is to make people okay with that. It's not yeah. really to stop any of that from happening. It's to make it fine. People okay with getting hit with a fee. Yeah. It's it's because people like walking in a store where everybody's smiling and happy because it gives the illusion that this is a fun place to be. And so, therefore I'm going to spend my money there. So if we might induce something of a definition for emotional labor from the examples that we've all given – it would be something like work where you are forced into, um, as Gene Allen put it, attenuating feeling your own feelings, either magnifying feelings that uh, you're supposed to have or controlling feelings that you're not supposed to have in order to do your job effectively. Like, yeah. that, that's basically what that is. I want... Um, I want you all to keep that in your minds as we sort of progress through this because what you're going to see is – so um, very quickly, I'm again going to quote from – this is a different Timothy Noah article. This one's from 2013. It's titled Labor of Love from the New Republic and as he puts it, emotional labor is not itself new. With greater sincerity, um, he says sex workers have faked orgasms for millennia. With greater sincerity, one hopes okay. – Undertakers calm the grieving, nurses comfort the sick, and migrant nannies lavish on other people's children the love they aren't present to furnish back home. Don't know how I feel about the last part of that sentence. Anyway, moving on. And all of it's fine. Yeah. And no, we're not done here. Flight attendants in the pre-feminist era calmed jittery flyers by being pretty, friendly, even a little bit flirtatious. This ended with deregulation in the early 80s as airlines stopped competing on service and started competing on price. And the reason I'm bringing this up is something Lou said, because the next part of this is, in all these instances, emotional labor served, legitimately or not, identifiable emotional needs. That's not true at... Uh, Pret, which is the fast food chain that this article is discussing mainly, fast food service is not one of the caring professions. And there's been sort of an expansion of, as as he puts it, basically, at some, every profession is being made to act like somebody's concierge at this point. Everyone's being asked to do this kind of work where it's not just you do your job and you do it well. But also you have to feel the right things or you have to make the customer think that you feel the right things. Yeah. Which is just an increasingly just exhausting way to exist. So uh, we're so glad you've been listening. We're actually at capacity on this segment and we don't think we can hold appropriate space for more definitional thinking here. Could we connect in a bit uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about what emotional labor is not. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm still Noah, and I'm still here with Lou. Hey, guys. And Gene Allen. Hiya. You might be wondering why we ended that last segment on kind of a, a clunky and obviously jokey way. Or you might not. You might have recognized the exact thing that we were referencing. 
in either case, uh, Gene, would you like to yeah. sort of handle to this quote, one? To quote knowyourmeme.com, uh, <laughs> on November 18th, 2019, Twitter user <laughs> at Fya Mbello, uh, Fya M. Fabello. 2014 Tumblr ass name right there. Yeah. Tweeted, hey, I'm so glad that you, as like basically this is their form letter for when people reach out to them. Hey, I'm so glad you reached out. I'm actually at capacity slash helping someone else who's in crisis slash dealing with some personal stuff right now. And I don't think I can hold appropriate space for you. Could we connect uh, brackets later date or time should use a parenthesis brackets are for when you make a parenthetical statement within a parenthetical statement instead <laughs> slash do you have someone else you could reach out to uh, out to um, welcome to punctuating out <laughs> <laughs> woo um, and everyone dunked point. on dunked on them because I mean first of all that's like a very uh, Patrick Bateman kind of way <laughs> to respond to uh, a, a, a cry for help but also because it kind of really well that was the, that was the response too like somebody uh, i didn't actually read the full thread because i it was, refused to it was one of those ones where it was, it was a, like 40 tweets long yeah, yes i refused to read that no it was a response to somebody be like hey do you have room in your emotional schedule for me right now with my problems and then that was the response of actually no i'm at capacity blah 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 well so and Lou, you had a way of each other <laughs> And Lou, you had a way of saying, you said what this sounded like. You said, like, after that, you would expect to hear, like, um, what was it, like a press one for... <laughs> yeah, like, you're supposed to get an unautomated response or something from it of, of it's it's exactly what Gene Allen said. It's like a form letter yeah. where you circle each one of these and you just get, like, a stack of them from the office or something. And then as people send you memos, um, it's like an auto response from your email inbox. Yes. It's or or it could be one of those automated voicemail where it's like, tell me what your problem is. And then <laughs> if you don't speak like very specific American English, it doesn't understand you. And, and you're people just love all of those things, which they is do. why it was received very well. Yes, <laughs> exactly. But we're not just doing this to idly dunk on a Twitter user. We're right? also doing this to idly dunk right. on Twitter users. That is part F of the yeah, reason we're doing it. Yes. Uh, but that's on Enemy the, of the show. Right. <laughs> No, we don't have enemies. We only have friends. Yes. Uh, noted friends of the show, We Work, Neil Gorsuch, right? Yep. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> so the reason we're bringing this up is because, well, quite frankly, because I don't think, I don't even remember if this particular person used the term emotional labor, like those exact two words. But that was definitely the energy coming off of those tweets, that to make her listen to your problems was exploitative in a way and that in a, in a way that went beyond just kind of the normal like hey I can't deal with this right now like yeah. I think Lou and and Gene when we were off air were talking specifically about how the customer service like quality of it or the the sort of impersonality of it is what people really reacted badly to because it made it sound like they didn't actually have you they weren't actually having a conversation with yeah. you, right? Yeah. Like, it, it didn't sound like that person was recognizing, here's somebody else who's in pain, and how do I best reach out to them? It made it very clinical. Yeah, very, very detached, and it was it was bad. Yeah, and, like, I don't, again, I did not read the thread because I have a life, and you didn't want to. I read it, the thread. Yeah, uh, I read half the thread. So I, on uh, average, we read the thread. I'm also not nearly as online as you two. So cool. Wow. Okay. Just saying. Uh, <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> but but like the whole discourse around it was about emotional labor and and how this is not emotional labor. Like emotional labor is a very specific term to describe what we talked about in the previous section of something that is actually related to the functions of your job that you have to have in order to survive your service work, your, your, um, whatever that is. And to, you know, point out like something that we did say in the previous segment, you could never use this as a response to one of your students. I could never use this as a response to one of uh, my yeah. customers or to one yeah. of your customers. Yes. Yeah. You couldn't be like, ah, oh, man, I'm feeling down. Sorry, I can't do yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Like, 
And I mean, it would be very funny. It would but be. You can't. It, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I really wish. <laughs> but yeah, that's it's. I, you know those like uh, joke things you can get to for people for dumb stocking stuffers or whatever, where ooh. it's like, uh, you know, you're being a jerk and check off the the various and boxes for how mm-hmm. they're being a jerk and then hand it to Oh, them. like one of those uh, one of those notepads. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes. Those notepads that you can get at weird uh, home supply stores. Yes. Why I can't listen to you right now. Yeah, yeah. why I can't listen to you right now. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's exactly with those and it, it, it comes across as a joke. And to be fair, we all know somebody who needs to be better about setting boundaries for how much they care for people. And that's what a lot of people did respond to in this is, hey, I should be better about limiting what I can actually handle and setting boundaries for myself and boundaries for the relationships I'm in. But the way that this was used is is bad because it's it's buying into the whole idea that all our relationships in capitalism are transactional. It's what can I get out of somebody and what can they give to me? And I don't know, uh, like we can talk about this later, but I think that this kind of connects to a very particular kind of uh, way of being that a lot of people have right now because because like for a lot of people, their jobs feel relatively meaningless and the way that they get meaning is through like internet transactions and being like some sort of like internet famous person. And that is in like a very weird and gross way, a job that you're constantly doing. So you can like start to get into this mode wherein every interaction that you have um, in this completely alienated world feels like work. Mm-hmm. But as the um, creator, I don't, I don't remember her name, but as the creator of the term uh, emotional labor said, like, yes, like when you are in a situation, for instance, when you're parenting and like it can feel alienating to have to do all of this work. But the answer isn't that it's inherently alienating. It's why is this feel like an alienated thing? Right. Uh, So the person we're talking about is Arlie Hochschild. And I have this article which is an interview with her. It's called The Concept Creep of Emotional Labor. It is from The Atlantic. We checked. It is not sponsored content. It is from (laughs) November 26, 2018. And Hochschild says, there seems an alienation or a disenchantment of acts that normally we associate with the expression of connection, love, commitment, like, oh, what a burden it is to pick out gifts for the holiday for my children. Or, oh, it's so hard to call a photographer to do family Christmas photos and then to send it to my parents. I feel a strong need to point out that this isn't inherently an alienating act and something's gone haywire when it is. And I like this quote. I guess this is another book. The book that Hochschild invented the term emotional labor and set that down to paper was called The Managed Heart. And I guess she's got another one called The Time Bind where she specifically says, what if home has become work and work has become home? And a theme that we have essayed very often on this show (laughs) is that work offers – Companies have essentially tried to offer more of the, not exactly comforts, but more of the features of what your home life is supposed to be, Mm -hmm. because ultimately they want to alienate you away from that home life. They want to make you an automaton who only exists at work. And to do that, they have to simulate to some extent what home is like. But then as, as Gene, as you're saying, the response to that is that then it becomes, because now you every other sphere of your life becomes hard work to keep up with. Yeah. And yeah. there's kind of a weird thing here. One of the things that uh, Timothy Noah mentions, uh, one of the explanations for why now emotional labor, uh, or rather why customer service now depends so completely on emotional labor when it didn't necessarily always, is that as the as upper class, basically that upper class expectations of customer service have begun to expand beyond that class as people, as sort of quote unquote affluence in like um, the the NPR slash Wall Street Journal version of what that is, as that has expanded beyond the traditional aristocracy, what has happened is that more and more people expect the same kind of service that the upper class is used to. And I think we've also imported with that a certain amount of upper class norms about what, you know, our relationships are like with each other. Right. And uh, to, 
I guess to connect this to another thing that emotional labor isn't, but also to connect it to that point, like social reproduction, yes. which is defined as like kind of the work that you do five to nine, like, you know, you get home, you or you or your spouse or whatever makes dinner and then you, you know, you watch TV or you talk to each other, et cetera, et cetera. And that, you know, it reproduces you. It makes you emotionally and physically capable of going to work the next day. Right. Well, and not just that. And we've talked about this in one of the, the feminist episodes we've done, but the like raising of a new ge- generation, yeah. taking care of your kids. Social reproduction is often gendered work. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, it falls to, to especially women. It's it's making sure that everybody had enough food and has enough rest and is uh, has clean clothes enough that they can go to work the next day or go to school so that they can be learn to be good workers. That's that is what these are. This is that specific scenario. It's not emotional labor. It's not emotional labor. It is a kind of work. Right. It is a kind of work. Yeah. It has emotions to it, but emotional labor pertains to managing emotions in your nine to five social reproduction is the actual physical labor and emotional that goes in from five to nine. Exactly. As you said, and to connect this to the pre-de-manger thing, Tithi Bhattacharya had a book called uh, social reproduction theory. And one of the first chapters was about like the history of social reproduction. And, you know, during the medieval times and during the 19th century, what you had as like the locus of social reproduction was neighborhoods and like pretty broad neighborhoods and communities. And that isn't necessarily great. You would like if you're an outsider in that neighborhood slash community kind of sucked for you. But, you know, they were these broad and, you know, they weren't universal goods or anything like that. But you had this pretty broad your whole neighborhood like uh, and your extended family would help through all the these processes. Then in the 20th century with the growth of the welfare state, what the welfare state partially did and what other aspects of the state and the economy did was to basically – and suburbanization was to basically narrow social reproduction to just the nuclear family because the nuclear family is basically a creation of the 20th century. Um, and what we have now is that the nuclear family is also – Kind of, and the nuclear family is basically falling apart, as are the rem- remaining communities. So now, what we have is uh, basically going to your prêt de manger uh, barista or whatever you know service worker, and they're supposed to do the that work that your mom or you know spouse did of like making you feel at home. Yeah. Which sucks. That sucks. So, so my problem with this this creep into the definition of emotional labor is exactly what I said before. It it's making every relationship and just leaning into the idea that every relationship you have is transactional. That as your relationships become more alienated because of the effects of capitalism, we're going to then make these relationships. We're going to monetize them. In some capacity, like we've, I talked in, in episodes probably last year about how some people want to like put a, a wage to saying, Hey, boyfriend or girlfriend or whomever, uh, you are such a good guy and like charge per hug kind of nonsense like that. Um, this is a result of this kind of definition creep. Yes, and if you don't believe us, here's one from Gemma Hartley from a book called Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Woman and the Way Forward. Emotional labor, as I define it, is emotion management and life management combined. It is the unpaid, invisible work we do to keep those around us comfortable and happy. It envelops many other terms associated with the type of care-based labor I described in my article. Emotion work, the mental load, mental burden, domestic management, clerical labor, invisible labor. That at least is... You know, somewhere like close to what the actual definition is, it, 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 but it, it has, almost gets there. It has the same problem of treating the like treating feeling alienated from like doing ba- like the basic act of reproducing yourself and the, those immediately around you as like a co- transactional activity. Mm-hmm. So if you think that one's bad. I do. Uh, <laughs> in a guide to emotional labor for men in Mel Magazine. Thank God, finally. 
free invisible work women do to keep track of the little things in life that taken together amount to the big things in life, the glue that holds households and by extension proper society together. That's just that that's what y'all were talking about. That's just yeah. social reproduction yeah, social is what that is. Yeah. I also like that this There's already a, a a term for this, guys. Yes. And I also in particular like that by including the clause that women do. Like I'm not gonna tell you that it is not gender work. Absolutely not. But by including that in the definition, it almost implies like that's the natural state of yeah. things. Anything women do in society or home life or whatever, that's emotional labor. Right. Well, which is being here right now with you guys is emotional labor. It is. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> We're what sorry. Gets, what, and it gets it like precisely wrong because like another – like one of the most interesting arguments about social reproduction is that gender is constructed by like mm. the, that yeah. kind of work mm -hmm. as opposed to that kind of work is inherently gendered. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. And if you think that one's bad. I do. In the New York <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, I do. In the New York Times, okay. th this one is – the duties that are expected of you, but go unnoticed. What? <laughs> That's not even. No. I That's hate, just wrong. I hate when on I do every emotional level. labor by opening a door for someone <laughs> and they don't even, you know, but even kiss like, me on the cheek. I yeah. hate when I, I hate when I do emotional labor by like, I don't even know, yeah. like opening a window because it's colder right. inside the. Like I don't. It's definition creep. It's it's. So all of these terms exist in to describe specific problems or specific consequences of capitalism. But because everybody's decided I'm just going to use it, people on the left especially, but in all circles, we want to use these terms and we try to couch all our behavior in these terms that exist. So me being nice to my friend, it's emotional labor. And just to justify our own behavior. And say, well, the fact that I'm treating my friend like this and saying, I, I'm out of capacity right now, slash, don't have time for your needs. Uh, this is all bound in the term emotional labor so that I can feel good about how I'm treating other people. That this is the rational thing to do. There's discourse on it with a capital D. And this is all good and rational and fine and acceptable. But it's not. And it, cre it creates this, this definition creep. That's makes all words meaningless. Like the term gaslighting now means nothing, frankly. It means Everything, being told you're wrong. Yeah, being told you're wrong is just gaslighting. Well, I think, I think you're exactly right. There is, even on the left, I would say instead of especially, but even on the left, there is a need for some kind of objectivity around things, I think. You get this idea that things have to be objectively definable in order for you to decide whether they are good or bad. Mm -hmm. So my being nice to a friend can't just be yeah. and and feeling kind of like I don't have the I, I don't have the ability yeah. to do this right now can't just be me as a person thinking, oh, whoa, I got in way too deep into this. I need to take a step back and and think about, am I able to handle this right now? No, it has to be, this friend is now making me do emotional labor by asking me to continue to help them with their yeah. issue. And what it just creates in the end is a climate where, as you have ably laid out over the course of the segment, people feel, it, it creates the other end of those transactional relationships. It creates people who feel bad for asking people to be there for them, mm -hmm. for asking people to be in community with them. And that is, uh, I mean, it's gross and it's exhausting to be on either end of that interaction because there is no amount of apologizing or of uh, defending or of uh, communion that you can be in with someone that will get them to realize that, yes, it is okay to ask people respectfully, sure, whatever you want, considerately. But it is okay to ask people to be there for you. It is okay to ask people to respect that you have an emotional problem that needs help. It is okay to ask people to help you out in certain things. Mm -hmm. there, is a, there is a need to believe that we don't deserve, uh, not only that we don't deserve nice things like, I don't know, healthcare uh, or education or housing, there's not only like a need to believe that we don't deserve these these concrete things, but that we don't even deserve emotional connection or empathy from others. And it's really sad to watch someone 
continually fall over themselves just trying to to get to the point where they accept that it is okay to share, that it is okay to ask someone else to take on a little bit of their pain just for a moment. Yeah. And to, you know, to wrap this all up, to give a quick definition of all of this stuff, social reproduction is what Goofy did in a Goofy movie. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Keep going. You you started this. Sure. What's the other one? Nope, we're done. All right. (laughs) Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, emotional labor is what Powerline did when Max and Goofy burst into the thing and accepted it as... You know now we can't watch this movie, right? Like it used to be that maybe we could find uh, that, but now it's... What was the thing where where you're told that you're wrong? Gaslighting. And gaslighting is what Max did to Goofy. Right. All right. So for the so if somebody has a Disney Plus home. subscription, they would this like to share my, with us. I'd like to announce so that this is my that. first and last episode. She's <laughs> <laughs> never coming back. So if if we can get a uh, Disney Plus subscription so that we can watch these movies, that would be great. Please don't actually send it. We don't want to get arrested. Oh, um, they would too. But I think what we've sort of teased out is that there are a subset of people. I don't know. Some of them are definitely on the left. Some of them, most of them, I would say, are not who, for whatever reason, be it because they think this is an imitation of, of upper-class norms, be it for, you know, just regular old, this is a reaction to capitalism taking over every aspect of our lives, have kind of decided that this is how they're going to treat everything. And when you get to a logical end of that, you end up uh, where somebody, I believe her name is Jenny Hogan, Lou? I Didn't, don't remember. Uh, this is an article that you found? Oh, yes, that one. I, I yeah. believe it's called – it's from McSweeney, so it is it is satire, but I think you'll find that I'm it not is not sure the targeted correctly. It's called How to Pay Taxes for Your Emotional Labor. Yeah, it's pretty spectacular. So it, it – to, to summarize the article, it goes through the steps you need to take in order to figure out how much you can deduct from your taxes for all the emotional labor that you've done throughout the year. Uh, so, That's not how um, taxes work. <laughs> it's not how taxes work. Well – Moving on. Yeah. So uh, first line is you have to tally up the emotional labor you performed this year. So for the calendar year, figure out how many men you explained me to to without making them feel like the enemy. Now calculate how much time you spend thanking your husband for doing the dishes and not cheating on you. Consider all the time you spent giving excessively polite feedback to all your male coworkers. It all adds up. Uh, you have to then calculate your compens- uh, compensation, figure out your income bracket, bracket, list your dependents. Fortunately, this will be a lot of people. Most of your friends depend on you emotionally, especially those who are still unmarried. Oh, God. This is so great. Have you yeah. noticed that this is the part we hadn't heard before? <laughs> your husband, your children, your husband's friends, your shaman. What? What? <laughs> All of them. Normal. This things. article is now canceled. This is so normal. Things. I love and this. So that is what emotional if, – if you want a more perfect distillation of what emotional labor is not, I mean, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. What we would like to do instead is rather than saying let's – rather than what a lot of people have done and have said let's lean into that conception of what it is as hard as possible, we would like to take the next segment and provide a, a better future, a more positive direction for this. We'll see you then. If you're listening to this on the radio, congratulations. It's the exact middle point of the work week. If that doesn't make you feel any better, try listening to more Punching Out. All our past shows are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Noah, and I'm here with Gene. Hiya. And Lou. What's up? So over the last two segments, we have defined 100%, finally, forever, what emotional labor is and what emotional labor is not. They we are stop talking about it. Exactly. They are completely inarguable. Wait, no, we have a third segment. No, uh, but after this segment, if anybody ever tweets about it ever again. Just send them this episode. Just send them this episode and then say, get, get it together. D- somebody already <laughs> or, did this. Yeah. They spent an We've hour of their time. Doing this, they they did record, they did acoustic labor. We did emotional labor for you. Yeah. So anyway, that's not what emotional labor is. Please. Thank you. So in in the third segment, we do like to try to bring it, um, bring a little more positivity into a show. And I think here the particular difficulty that we have with this topic is that we sort of have to answer two questions. One is 
how do we deal with people who, how do we deal with that subset of people that are treating every relationship as transactional? Don't say gulags again, you two. Well, okay. <laughs> and, but I have, this connects to, because oh, I, no, I, no. I, I have this idea that. Uh, you mentioned the Goofy movie again. <laughs> I have this idea that uh, it, under under a post-capitalist society, all, all wannabe, everyone who describes himself as a wonk gets to go to, you know, Albany or something like that and gets to do all of the things that make them feel important, but only for like a, a SimCity level. They only get to pass laws based off of a SimCity level. Similar thing. We'll send them all to, I don't know, San Francisco or something, and they can all be transactional to each other. And I just don't think these cities deserve that. Well, but, or we'll build a new, we'll build emotional labor city. I like it. And then that the sounds second, like a gulag. <laughs> and we're going to stop there. <laughs> and then the second question that we have to answer is... The future without what actually is emotional labor. Because we did say in the first segment, there are always jobs that are going to require it. I mean, if, you know, no no just society, I think, would allow a teacher to simply tell a kid that they're stupid to their face. You know, that's just not <laughs> yeah. acceptable. Yeah. No just society would ever ask patients to put up with medical staff who simply did not care about their needs and did not emotionally support them on their journey through illness. So this will always be part of what we do, but how do we do it in a way that isn't entirely defined on the terms of, as we always say, the worst people on the planet, you know, the capitalist class, the bosses, the people who use your emotions or lack thereof if they don't think they're the appropriate ones to control your, your livelihood. How do we do that Yeah. without building, uh, you know, like we can't build emotional labor city for that purpose. <laughs> ah, I was going to say that again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's to the first question, honestly, it's honestly, you do have to do a little bit of reeducation and say, <laughs> see, I'm, continue. Yeah. You have to do some reeducation when somebody comes up to you and says, uh, do you have capacity for me right now? And they're not being ironic about it. Uh, you should say, look, I'm your friend. We're buddies. We can do this. This is, doesn't have to be transactional. And then maybe actually, you know, let them know what emotional labor is actually. Because the chances are good, too, that the person saying that to you doesn't have to do emotional labor in their actual job. And and so in order to feel included and important, they're misusing this so that they can feel a little like a martyr. They're, they're appropriating, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, hey, if I don't have time for you, I'll, I'll let you know I don't have time for you. But, like, we are friends, and you shouldn't feel bad that we are friends. That, yes, like, that should be kind of an expectation. That's yeah. the whole reason you become <laughs> friends with somebody, because you have an ability to empathize with one another and to be there for each other in, in the bad moments. Because it's it's infuriating to talk about the way that some people reduce these things to terms that are supposed to define market relationships uh, for just friendships, for yeah. family, for for things that are, you know, not part of that equation, that are not part of that space. Yeah. And there are some cases where it's like, yeah, you should – like I had periods of my life where I was that kind of person who used all of my friends as my collective therapist. Don't do that. If you need a therapist, get a therapist. But, you know, like uh, have reciprocal relationships. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But connected to that, I think, is like the problem that we identified at the end, which is that the reason that these are getting marketized, like the reason that we're increasingly using the language and the c- concepts of the market to refer to almost everything in our lives is that the market is now – you can't escape it. It's not like, oh, you go home and then you said, oh, honey, I'm home. And then like, you know, you're in your own, your own little castle or whatever the heck, which was never the case for women, but right. bracket that statement. Yes. Um, but it's not like there. there's not an escape from the market anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of been pitched almost as a liberatory thing. That like, oh, well, now you don't have to even interact with a person. You can just get a Grubhub order or something like yeah. that. Yeah. It, <laughs> no, it it blows my mind how you're phrasing this because what it, it leads to is essentially 
You know how good you feel when you do retail therapy? What if you applied that to emotional therapy? Like, yeah. that's basically what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of how uh, there was a period of time when I didn't, like, have headphones. And I would just be, like, walking around. And I'm used to playing music. So I would just – I noticed that I started just mumbling to myself. And it's like you're – existing in this emotional world that's completely self-enclosed and consisting only of people who are paid to be nice to you. Yeah. Which is uh, an infantilizing world to live in and Mm -hmm. not a thing that we should be happy about or feel like it's liberatory. So I feel that that leads to the second question that Noah posed to us is, is how do we create a world that deals, you know, because emotional labor is still going to need to exist. How do we create that world where our all our relationships are not so transactional? What Gene Allen had said in the break was that we need to really work on building communities and and work on you know directly counteracting these atomizing conditions that capitalism capitalism has put us in. Um, for the past fifty years or so, we have, as a society, decided that the best way we can treat all of the effects of capitalism, the the alienation we feel, the um, destruction of of middle class and the overbearing upper classes, is to treat it with more capitalism. Mm-hmm. So all of our re- relationships are transactional. You can buy friends, you can buy every aspect of your life. And that is, and I've said it before on the show, the solution to capitalism is never going to be more capitalism. Right. We, we talked at the macro level about, yes, as Gene had said in the last segment, communities were the locus for this kind of interaction, and now they're not. I, I kind of want to take the micro level on that because so much of my job is, and even the dumbest people involved in education know this, so much of your job has nothing to do with even the subject or the, I guess it is technically part of the indoctrination piece, quote unquote, but it's ultimately, you are trying to teach your students how to be a person in the world that they are going to inhabit. That is one of the greatest difficulties because obviously you are sort of split apart a little bit from that world if you teach for a living. Uh, so you're trying to teach them how to inhabit the world that you did, but you don't necessarily know if that's the world that they're going to be in. But second of all, you know, we we carry a certain moral charge. We carry a certain charge of turning our students into good citizens, good people, people that the rest of the world should not necessarily want to be around all the time, but should be able to be in community with. And I think because of th- this whole theme of kind of work has become – where we localize ourselves and everything else just kind of becomes a difficulty that we endure until we go back to work. There's a problem where we're willing to be professional to our coworkers. And, you know, that means like a certain code of interaction and sort of manners and politeness. But then we don't want to have any kind of standard like that for everyone else in our lives. So it's okay to be terrible to your friends because they're your friends. They wouldn't be around you if they weren't okay with you doing that. It's okay to be terrible to family for no reason because obviously there are people who have family situations that are, uh, you know, gross and inappropriate and they shouldn't want to be involved with those relatives. But instead of what it should be, which is kind of the flip side, like it should be okay that if, if you go to work, I'm not saying you mistreat your coworkers, but you're both there for the same reason. You're making someone else money. Those are not people that you choose to be around. And I think we have a lot of difficulty in this day and age because we're so isolated from each other. Being willing to accept that you might not get along with somebody all of the time. You might not be happy with Mm -hmm. them all of the time. But that that does not mean that you cannot build community with them. We demand a standard of the people that we choose to be around in whatever reason that is unrealistic in the extreme. We demand them to be emotionally available. And and I think this is what some people are responding to. But we demand them to be emotionally available in the ways that we want them to be at each moment. We ask them to read our minds for us. And I think that if we learn to maybe be a little bit better towards each other, we could build those communities. I mean, I know that ultimately a lot of this will be solved at a much bigger level than the individual. But I don't think that you can discount the role of learning to be a better person for others. 
And mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't mean that you have to uh, suddenly, like, be uh, completely loving and nice to your, your uncle who just mm-hmm. gets off on, like, you know, quoting whatever the heck, uh, the, the Daily Stormer or something. <laughs> but, you know, the... Random publication. Yeah. Not an endorsement. Right. But it does mean that, you know, the cho- chosen communities that you're a part of, like, we need to build that we need to have stronger communities and it doesn't just mean like a circle of friends and it doesn't mean just like the group of people that you date and the group of people that your friends date. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I can't think of a better way to wrap up than that. So we hope we've established and settled this for all time. It will never come up again. Nope. Because we've done We're it. Done. We finished it. It's over. Yep. So for this week, I'm Noah. I'm Lou. And I'm Gene Allen. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.